We just began a series in the Gospel of John a couple of weeks ago. And so far, as we've been making our way through the first chapter, we've seen that John has drawn this term, the Word, not primarily from Greek philosophy or from other contemporary usage at the time that he was writing, but primarily from the Old Testament. The Word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And what does the Word of the Lord do in the Old Testament? It reveals God, and it is God's active power. The Word doesn't just start processes rolling the way that the Word of a CEO of a company gets the ball rolling on projects and things. He gives the Word, and then something happens as a result of that Word. No, When God's word goes forth, it accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. To quote the prophet Isaiah. When God says, let there be light, someone doesn't run to get light and then bring it. When God says, let there be light, there is light. When God speaks, the waters are parted. Diseases are healed. His people are rescued and so forth. God's word does it. So we see that Jesus is a revelation of God. The fullest revelation of God. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke by his prophets. But now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. There's a supremacy, there's a fullness, there's an ultimacy in his revelation of himself. In and through the word incarnate. And Jesus is God's active power. He has come not only to teach us something, to reveal something to us, but Jesus has come to do something. The purposes that God has for His people, Jesus has come to bring to fruition. And Jesus has come to do these things not merely as a servant of God, but as God Himself. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in case that first verse wasn't clear enough, which it is, and you can go back and listen to the recording of the first sermon I preached for a more detailed exposition of that and the mistranslation of the Jehovah's Witnesses and their like. In case verse 1 wasn't clear enough, verse 3 drives home the point. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so if you make two categories of beings, those which were made and those which are makers, Jesus is on the side of makers. Right? So in case verse 1 wasn't clear enough, verse 3 is indisputable. Jesus is not on the side of that which was made, even if He were the first and greatest supposed creation. Jesus is on the other side of that creator-creature distinction. And then we saw last week that Jesus brings, as the Christmas hymn says, light and life. Light and life to all He brings. Jesus has come to be the light at the end of our dark tunnels. To those who have dwelt in a land of great darkness, on them light has shone in the person of Jesus Christ. He brings life to our death. 
In Him, we have life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And so this Word, who is God's revelation, who is God's active power, who is God Himself, who brings light and life, now we see in John chapter 1 and verse 14, becomes flesh and dwells among us. This is all we're looking at today. The beginning of John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The Word, this Word that I've just described to you, this One, this Being, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what theologians have called the Incarnation. In the flesh. There are things that we individuals don't know about the Incarnation. There are things that we individuals don't know about the Incarnation. Sometimes, simply because we haven't learned it yet. What is the temperature of the sun? Some of you may know that. I heard 15 million. Well, let me clarify. Are we talking about the core or are we talking about the surface? (laughs) Someone knows. The core of the sun is about 15 million degrees Celsius. The surface of the sun is a mere 5,600 degrees Celsius, apparently. Alright, I just googled that question this week in preparation for this message. Now I know that if I'm on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and there are questions about the surface of heavenly bodies... If I'm going to phone a friend, I know who to call. (laughs) My guess is that most of us didn't know those figures until I just told you. You see, there are things that we don't know as individuals simply because we haven't learned them yet. It doesn't mean that they're not knowable. Now you know. The core of the sun is roughly 15 million degrees Celsius. The surface of the sun is roughly five and a half thousand degrees Celsius. You didn't know because you hadn't learned it yet. Now you know. Those things were not unknowable. You just hadn't learned them yet. Likewise, there are things about the incarnation that are knowable. But you or I may simply not know them because we haven't learned them yet. Here are a couple of questions that I have about the Incarnation. And perhaps some seminary professor somewhere is going to listen to this message and be like, what, he's a pastor if he doesn't know these things? Alright, but listen. How can the God 
who does not change become something. Him in whom there is no becoming becomes flesh. Okay, I don't understand that. Then the Trinitarian metaphysics of the Incarnation are also hard for me to understand. We're teaching our boys uh, children's catechism. And one of the questions is, what is God? And this question speaks to the manner of His existence. And the catechism answer is, God is spirit and does not have a body like man. Okay, so then my boys are onto something because they go, Jesus doesn't have a body. And I'm like, well, actually, that's an ancient heresy. Jesus, Jesus does have a body. And they say, no, no, no. That Jesus is God and God is spirit and does not have a body like man. And they got me, right? Because because on the one hand we say we say that the Son of God in His divinity doesn't have a body like man, but in His humanity. But then we but then we're we're navigating our way through a landmine of various heresies, and we're trying to figure out what is the right way to talk about the metaphysics of the incarnation. As it pertains to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So those are just those are a couple of things that I'm still trying to understand. Perhaps you have your own list of things that you're still trying to understand about the incarnation. Theologians have been studying and synthesizing the data of Scripture for the last 2,000 years, trying to make as much sense as possible of this mind-blowing statement that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We would do well to listen and learn, and neither to assume that our first conclusions are right, nor to assume that because it's not immediately apparent to us, answers to the questions that we have cannot be found. There are things that we as individuals don't know about the Incarnation simply because we haven't learned it yet. And it may well be that those who have gone before us have already found answers for which we are still searching. So a point of application. Keep learning about the Incarnation. Don't go read a blog post about the Incarnation and be like, boom, got it. I'm an expert now on Trinitarian metaphysics because I read this blog post. Even if it's on Reformation 21 or Ligonier or wherever, there's much to learn about the Incarnation. Keep learning. Then there are things that we don't know about the Incarnation Because they are beyond our capacity to know. We talked about the heat of the sun a few minutes ago. What does it feel like to be in the center of the sun at 15 million degrees Celsius? We could never know this. 
We could never know the answer to that question because it's beyond our capacity to know. Our physical bodies are incapable of acquiring that knowledge. Likewise, there is knowledge that our minds are incapable of acquiring. We shouldn't imagine that our minds are so unlike our bodies. That our bodies are subject to finiteness and restraint and limitation, but our minds are not. As our bodies are finite, so are our minds. We are finite creatures. God's infinitude, by definition, cannot be fully understood and known by finite beings. What this means, very simply put, so that a child could understand it, is you're not going to ever know everything there is to know about God. Ever. People talk about, well, when we get to glory, we're going to know it all. No, you won't. You're going to be in glory for 10 million years and you're still not going to know it all. There are things that we will never know because we are finite and God is infinite. If you're a skeptic or you know someone who is a skeptic who pokes fun at Christianity and doctrines like the Trinity well how can God be three persons and one God well how can God who never changes become flesh and dwell among us maybe they've taken a first year philosophy course at UE and in their own minds have attained to another plane beyond us mere mortals and in fact beyond some of the greatest thinkers and philosophers throughout history because they've raised some difficult questions some admittedly difficult questions if this is you or this is someone you know Consider whether you have a realistic view of yourself and a realistic view of God. Do you think of yourself as a finite being? And do you conceive of God as an infinite being? Is the fact that there are things in Christianity that humans are unable to understand evidence to you against Christianity? If so, that might indicate that you don't have a very realistic view either of yourself or of God. Because if you were to see and recognize that you are, in fact, very much finite, and if you were to recognize that by definition, whoever God is must be infinite, Think about that, and that'll give you some food for thought for a little while. God must be infinite, by definition. And as a being that came into existence, you are also, by definition, finite. 
Therefore, it shouldn't be astounding that there are things positive of God in the Bible that are hard for people to understand. These things then shouldn't be evidence to you against Christianity, but perhaps actually ought to be evidence to you in favor of Christianity. That we're actually speaking realistically about a being who is infinite. Or at least you should grant that the hard doctrines of Christianity, such as the Trinity or the Incarnation, are consistent with the nature of infinitude being revealed unto finite beings. So there are some things we don't know about the Incarnation. Sometimes it's just because we haven't learned things yet. There are things that are knowable, but we just, as individuals, haven't learned them yet. And then there are things about the Incarnation that we don't know because it's beyond our capacity to know. However, there are things we do know about the Incarnation. In speaking about these sorts of things, a distinction has often been employed between apprehension and comprehension. To comprehend something is to know something fully and exhaustively that you you understand and you perceive everything about that thing. You're a master of it. Whereas to apprehend something is to take hold of it. Not necessarily the whole thing, not necessarily a thing in its entirety, but at least you get something of it. We will never comprehend the Trinity because He is infinite. And I think we will never comprehend the Incarnation. Perhaps in ages to come I'll be proven wrong. (laughs) But I don't think so. I don't think we'll ever get entirely how it is that the words became flesh and dwelt among us. But that doesn't mean that we can't apprehend the Trinity or that we can't apprehend the Incarnation. That we can't take hold of God truly. That we can't take hold of this Word become flesh or take hold of the truth that the Word became flesh to some extent. We may and must apprehend certain things about the Incarnation. We may and we must apprehend what is presented to us intelligibly in Scripture.
for one thing. That Jesus is more than a mere man. This is obvious, not only from explicit teaching like I just walked you through in John chapter 1. That the Word was with God and the Word was God. That all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Not only in the explicit statements of Scripture do we see that Jesus is more than a mere man. That fact is obvious also from His teaching. Jesus was more than a teacher. Those of a more liberal persuasion like to tell us that Jesus was basically just a teacher. That His legacy is that He left us some wonderful teachings. And so week by week, Sunday by Sunday, we gather to venerate this honorable teacher. And at Christmas we remember the birth of this teacher that came into the world and so on and so forth. And this is how Christianity is understood. Against that we say Jesus was much more than a teacher. Much more than a teacher. But Jesus was not less than a teacher. He taught us. And He spoke as His contemporaries said as no one else. Jesus held the crowds spellbound as He unfolded to them wonderful things from God. Jesus' teaching is remarkably profound. The fact that people are still talking about what Jesus taught today bears witness to that. And Tim Keller makes what I think is a good point. That Jesus' teaching goes with the grain of every culture and goes against the grain of every culture. Let me explain that. Jesus' teaching contains things that are easy for any culture to accept. And Jesus' teaching contains things that are hard for any culture to accept. So there are ways that we here in Barbados will read Jesus' teaching and be like, yeah, yeah, that that makes good sense. That really fits with the way that we think, the way that we do things. And then there are things that you read in Jesus' teaching and you go, whoa, surely he didn't really mean that. And so we give it more careful study and we look at the meaning of the Greek words and the syntax of the sentence. And then we realize, oh, he really did mean that. And it's simply difficult for us to accept. In another place in the world, let's just take Asia, for example, there may be different things that are easy for a different culture to accept. And they go on and they read through. And some of the things that we had a hard time with here in Barbados, they read and they're like, yeah, no problem. That fits very well with our understanding and the way that we do things. But then maybe some of the things that we had an easy time accepting, maybe they read and they say, that's difficult to accept. Surely Jesus didn't mean that. And then they go do their study and they realize, yeah, Jesus did mean that. But it's hard for them to accept. What we see is that Jesus' teaching isn't the product then of any particular culture. Jesus 
rubs people the wrong way. Not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Not only the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth, but also the Roman Emperor. So did Jesus' teaching come out of first century Judaism? Or did it come out of first century uh, Greco-Roman thought? Or did it come out of neither? If neither, where did it come from? And Keller argues that this is evidence of its divine origin. And then Jesus' miracles further attest to the obvious fact that he is more than a mere man. He healed the sick. Not with medicine, with the words of his mouth, with the touch of his hand. Unlike the charlatans that hold healing crusades here, there, and everywhere, but most, if not all, regularly go home sick, who promise grand things and under-deliver, Jesus really did heal the multitudes. And He fed them miraculously. You remember the story of the loaves and the fish. Well, the Anglican church down in St. Lawrence Gap, I knew someone who attended there for many years before she passed away. And she told my wife once that The priest there expounded that story of the Gospels about Jesus feeding the multitudes with the loaves and the fish in this manner, that it was the miracle of sharing, and that everybody shared the loaves and the fish. Some nonsense along those lines. Which sort of neglects the uh, statement in that story that everyone ate as much as they wanted. And that baskets full were gathered up afterwards. This is clearly a miraculous thing. This isn't the miracle of sharing. This is someone who is, has divine power operative in and through him. And Jesus exhibited power over nature. You think of his message to the Sea of Galilee. Peace, be still. Prophets of old had done similar things. Moses parted the Red Sea. God has healed people before Christ and after Christ by His servants. He's miraculously fed His people, again, through His servants. But in the case of one who claims to be divine, one of whom it is claimed was God, these things become evidences that not only is God working through this man, but this man is God. And then his resurrection. When a man claims to be God and then comes back from the dead, we should take note. Then we see on the face of Scripture not, not merely that Jesus is more than a mere man, 
We should apprehend that, that Jesus is more than a mere man. But more than that, we should apprehend this, that Jesus is not an imposter, merely posing as God, or merely posing as a servant of God. This is evident from Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. A number of times throughout the Gospels, including the Gospel of John, we read something like this. This happened in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Or this happened as it is written. So on and so forth. I've quoted someone before. I think it was Carson. I'm having a hard time sourcing the quote. But I've quoted someone before who said, The Old Testament tells us what the Messiah is. And the New Testament tells us who the Messiah is. So we had a category of a person who is the Messiah before Matthew chapter 1 ever started. And like the shoe could only fit Cinderella. So the shoe of Old Testament prophecy could only fit Jesus Christ. He must be, among other things, they could multiply with great specificity so much that the Messiah must be, according to the Old Testament Scriptures. But just to take a sampling. The son of Adam, that's easy. The son of Abraham, the son of David, of the tribe of Judah, Born in Bethlehem, his feet and hands pierced, according to the psalmist, pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, resurrected, also Isaiah 53, and so on. Even just that small sampling right there. Somebody's going to come from the line of Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Jacob's son Judah, through the line of David who will be born in Bethlehem whose feet and hands will be pierced for our transgressions and then who will rise from the dead let's just make a short list of all the people in history who fit that bill and then we'll work by process of elimination alright let's see there's Jesus that's it actually who else could that be But Jesus, to put a spin on the question that someone asks in John chapter 7 and verse 31, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? To put a spin on that question, we could ask, if we're still waiting for the Christ, for the sake of argument, when the Christ appears, will he fulfill Old Testament prophecy more accurately, fully, and specifically than this man has done? In view of these things, we see that Jesus cannot be an imposter. Jesus cannot be merely posing as God or posing as a servant of God. But Jesus has the seal of Yahweh's approval. Jesus has the stamp of Yahweh's approval. Jesus comes not contra the revelation that has already been given in the Old Testament. But Jesus comes as a continuation of, in the same vein as, the revelation that has already been given in the Old Testament. 
unmistakably, as we consider these things, we are left with the conclusion that John chapter 1 and verse 14 is true. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We may not know how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, either because we haven't learned it yet or because it's beyond our capacity to know. We may not know how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but in view of the portrait that the Scripture paints of Jesus of Nazareth, we may and we must, though we can't comprehend it, we must apprehend it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We may not know that exhaustively, but we may know that it is true. We may know something of that wonderful, glorious, incomprehensible truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this understanding is sufficient to stir up worship in our hearts. I drew an analogy with the sun earlier. And we can revisit that analogy now. There are things that we do not know and things that we cannot know about the sun. But even in our ignorance, we can enjoy a sunny day. We can feel the sun's warmth. We can use and appreciate the sun's light. So it is with the Incarnation. Wondrous truth that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Though it be like the truth that the sun is 15 million degrees Celsius, in some sense beyond our comprehension, let's nevertheless accept it and marvel at it. Let's bask in the sunlight, so to speak. Jesus didn't come in order that the smartest, most educated theologians wouldn't have to be bored, but would have something interesting to talk about. Jesus didn't come to keep our seminary professors busy reading and writing books and lecturing on this grand theme. Jesus came to live, to die, to rise, to ascend, and to intercede for our salvation. Jesus came to pour out His Spirit upon us that we might become new creations. Jesus came to bring the Father to us and us to the Father. Jesus came to make the invisible God visible to us. To make the transcendent God imminent to us. To make the offended God reconciled to us. The Creator, our Father. You need not comprehend the Son to be dazzled by its brightness, to enjoy its warmth, to use and appreciate its light. Apprehend what you're able. But enjoy it in the meantime. Likewise, you need not comprehend the Incarnation to be dazzled by its brightness, 
apprehend what you're able. As I said at the beginning, keep learning. Press into this mystery. But enjoy it. Put it to use in the meantime. What use? What use? See His glory. Even if you don't understand His glory fully. Just as you can see the glory of the sun in our sky. Which is less excellent and less glorious. You can't even understand that thing. But you can still see some glory in that created thing shining in our sky. See then the glory of the God-man. And even if you can't understand, see that glory. And let His glory fill you with worship and with awe. Of course, of course, trust. Apprehend the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us for us and our salvation. Apprehend that fact, even if you don't comprehend it. Take hold of it, even if you can't wrap your mind fully around it. Take hold of that fact. Rest your soul on that truth. Trusting in Christ Jesus. Orienting your life around Him in worship, in adoration, in allegiance. Is like walking by the light of the sun. Or like laying on the beach. You don't need to understand everything about God. And everything about the incarnation. In order to make use. And to enjoy this grand truth. Look at Him. See His glory. Apprehend what you're able. Press in to know Him. And to know it, the incarnation, more and more. And as it is with the Son, so you'll find it is with Jesus. That the longer that you look at Him, the more intensely you look at Him, the more and more bright He is to you. The more and more glorious He is to you. And everything else becomes less and less so. As we look upon the incarnation, even if we don't fully understand it, we see glory. We're drawn to worship. We're drawn to trust. We are drawn to obey. And everything else fades. That is the purpose of the Incarnation.